0: So let there be life, and creation began. And God saw that it was good, so he continued with his plan. He brought forth the earth from the sea with the command, and in his very own image he breathed life into land, and it was perfect. Not a scratch or a flaw between the Lord and his creation, no separation at all until the one was deceived and caused the other one to fall and they were thrown out of the gate without a way to climb the wall, and it was hopeless. In a world of desperation and trial and tribulation and disorientation, and this is what it's like when we live in separation from God. When it all seems broken and we take a final breath to see the words that were spoken, the penalty for this disobedience is death. And now we've got to face the consequence according to the evidence of living in a house that's painted by our sinfulness. And running out of fear, not knowing that the father is following because he says that we were made for more than this. And so he stepped down into time and space, took sin upon himself, hung in our place, and with nails in his hands and blood on his face, he says, this is grace. And it covers up the most shameful thing that we have done It's big enough for every living thing under the sun, so it's time to forget this doubt to which we've clung. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his for he made it and his hands form the dry lands. Come, let us back Bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, or the flock under His care. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God, and and it is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, and praise his name. For the Lord, his good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. That was awesome, guys. Man, that is that is powerful. I don't know whose stand this is, but I'm gonna steal it for the next thirty minutes and then take it back from me. Thanks, Morgan. Yeah, man, that's good stuff, isn't it? That's so fun. I love it. Oh. By, by the way, obviously all credit goes to God, but this was Pastor David. He uh, said, I really would like to try this, and he has ran with it and just done an awesome job. Thank you, David, and thanks to the kids. Yeah. Well, in keeping with the same theme, by the way, you guys are going to watch me play with this all day. You don't usually see that with the big wooden one, but this one I'm I'm going to try not to move it too much, but we'll see. We're going to keep it with a the theme. We're going to stay in Psalms. Uh, wonderful reading those Psalms. It's so cool. We're going to be in Psalm chapter 78. So if you want to turn there, uh, we're going to look at the first kind of eight verses of, of that Psalm. We've been going through a series for the last three weeks that's been all about, we've, we've called it this series called Belong. What does it mean to belong to God? What is our task as people who belong to God? And what we've said is, namely, we who intentionally belong to God, we who have been saved by the blood of Christ, we've been tasked now to go out into the world that universally belongs to God and draw them into an intentional belonging. And most of this over the last few weeks is really focused on how do we interact with people out there that universally belong to God. But today we're going to shift gears and focus on this task within the context of what we're calling next generation. Or if you're really cool and hip, you call it next gen, like a cool person, right? So, uh, so next next generation. This is, this is difficult. And I have to say, like, it's even difficult for me. Um, I, from the age of 14, had felt God calling me to pastoral ministry. And I was always adamant. God is not calling me to youth ministry. God's not calling me to children's ministry. He's calling me to pastoral ministry because I don't understand kids. Even as a kid, I, like, didn't understand kids and so I'm at this point in life now where uh, I turned 31 in August and uh, I'm just continually hit with the freight train of reality over and over again of how old I really am. I don't know if you guys have encountered this, but Haley will tell me it's when my grumpy old man comes out. Um, and I don't like that. I don't want to be the grumpy old man, but it's like already, it just, sometimes you look at the world and it, it man, you understand this, right? It just boils out from you. I don't understand this song. I don't know why they write lyrics this way. It doesn't make any sense. I was complaining about that for a particular like, TikTok song just yesterday. And Haley's like, do you realize how old you sound right now? I was like, oh, I guess that's, that's fine. And kind of, I've had these thoughts where it's just like kids. Why, why are those kids over there dancing in the middle of the road? Philip, they're just making a video. Well, I don't understand why they have to do it in the middle of the road. It's the most dangerous place to be doing it. And Philip, your old man's coming out. Okay. And we have this tendency, right, from from those of us that are kind of generationally separated from that, that there's a gap that stands between it, to then separate ourselves from it because we think it's a tad ridiculous or we don't understand it. And it just keeps seemingly getting more and more complicated, because now your uh, leading anthropologists, our leading anthropologists in the world, are saying that what used to take 50 to 100 years for culture change and slow adaptation and technology development is now having rapid, swift, just swinging changes every five to 10 years. Usually three to five, some are even arguing that our culture is just rapidly changing left and right this is popular one day and all of a sudden it's the the pit of the pit of despair the next and then this is just back and forth and the more connected our world becomes the faster and more accessible technology travels and ideas travel what used to take generations to normalize and stabilize now takes one night as a TikTok algorithm pushes it to 140 million phones in a matter of minutes if you've experienced this, like I have, you probably feel a little bit overwhelmed. It kind of feels like we're riding a tricycle, racing against a bullet train, wondering how do we keep up? And if we're not careful, the next temptation from that is to say, well, I'm just going to give up entirely. If I can't keep up with this, if I can't, be relevant, whatever relevant even means today. I'm just gonna go ahead and give up entirely. Look, I don't, I don't understand TikTok dances, and it's clear I don't understand the upcoming generation, so I'm gonna go watch Andy Griffith reruns and just stick with that, because I get it. And there's nothing bad with Andy Griffith reruns, okay? That's not a problem. But it's this temptation to recluse out of the world we feel is too confusing and fast-paced, and then to make snide comments about the upcoming generation. And I was kind of thinking about, what are those comments about the upcoming generation? And I went and found some quotes. I wanted to see if maybe these resonate with you a little bit. What really distinguishes this generation from those before it is that it's the first generation in American history to live so well and complain so bitterly about it. You ever feel that? It was written in 1993 by the Washington Post about Gen X. Let that sink in. Here's another one, the now generation has become the me generation. Written in 1976 in the New York Times about baby boomers. There is no period in history where young people have given such rejection to that which is old and wished for that which is new. 1936, the New Hampshire Evening News. Here's my favorite, you ready for this one? The children today love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They disrespect their elders and love distraction in place of work. The philosopher Socrates, 350 years before Jesus walked earth. <laughs> Here's my point. I'm not saying the next generation is easy to understand. I'm not saying that the model is really simple and it's easy and it's, you don't even really have to think about it. But what I'm saying is there has always been a gap, a, a division, a distrust between older generation and younger generation. This feeling that you may be feeling as you see someone dancing in the middle of the street wondering, what is this world coming to? It's nothing new. This is what the world has dealt with every single generation from the history of man. This is Noah's son's rebellion. This is the way the kingdom falls apart when Solomon's sons divide it. This is the ongoing reality where it seems like the upcoming generation does not match the current responsibility. If you feel like you're in a whirlwind, and if you feel like you can't keep up, that's okay. It's always been that way. The question is, if this is nothing new, is this something scripture addresses? Absolutely it is. The Bible has been aware of this since the beginning of time. This is why God is constantly talking about passing it on to the next generation, talking to the next generation, sharing, caring, loving, giving to the next generation, because the model God has set forth is that we are obligated to pass on his truths. And to prove that to you, I want to take you to Psalm chapter 78 today. By the way, if you're a note taker, we're not going to do any notes until the very end of the sermon. So just hold tight on your notes and take stuff by hand before then if you want. But we just, I want to walk through Psalm 78 a little bit, and we need to begin, as always, with the context. So Psalm 78 is the second longest psalm in what we call the Psalter, which I feel like Psalter is a horrible word because I feel like salt shaker, right? Psalter is just another word for the book of Psalms. So second longest psalm in the book of Psalms, so we can't cover the whole thing. It's really, really long. But we'll pick up some pieces, look at them, look through them, and get this idea of what's going on. So it helps to have a general idea with the context that's that's going on with this. Uh, This psalm actually reads quite differently than the other psalms. It almost reads far more like a long-flowing poem spoken out loud. So this is what uh, Jordan and Araya just did just thousands and thousands of years ago. This was spoken word before spoken word was cool. And there's three options, kind of three general scholarly opinions for when this psalm was written. Um, so this is a little dense, but hold on with me because I think it, it matters. The first one, if you look at this top, it just says, a maskil of Asphah or Aspha Asaph, sorry, or Asaph. Um, Asaph was one of the men that was assigned by David to lead worship within the tabernacle once the tabernacle was, or once David moved the tabernacle to Jerusalem. Now there's some debate on whether or not if this is literally his psalm or if it's a title given to him in like a school that he had started uh, if it is his psalm, the likeliness is it has some extra things added in on it at the end. Because if you go all the way to the end, in cha- or chapter 78, verse 72, uh, it talks about David. And it says, he, David, shepherded them with a pure heart and guided them with skillful hands. So if Asaph did write this, he was a contemporary of David and would likely have not used the past tense. He wouldn't say David shepherded. He would say David shepherds them And so the thought is maybe Asaph either didn't write the whole thing or he didn't write the ending of it, which then asks us, well, where does this psalm really originate in? So a lot of scholars will put this in either the reign of Josiah or the reign of King Hezekiah. So this is generations after David, uh, Solomon, the kingdom splits, then generations following that whole division and debacle from there. Uh, So Hebrew PhD scholar James L. May suggests that Hezekiah is the most likely setting, so we're going to assume that's the backdrop. And I want to do that because it helps paint the picture of when this psalm may have been read aloud, when someone would have gotten up maybe in a service like this and just read start to finish Psalm chapter 78. So King Hezekiah you can read about him in 2 Kings chapter 18, if you're interested. But King Hezekiah comes to power when he's 25 years old, following King Ahaz's wicked reign. His father's Ahaz. Ahaz is known to be one of the worst kings in Israel. And then Hezekiah comes in, and 2 Kings 18 verse 5 tells us that Hezekiah's reign was, or he himself, was more zealous for the Lord than any of his predecessors. That this guy got it. He was for God, he loved God, he worshiped God. So when Hezekiah takes the throne at 25 years old, he implements these sweeping renewal points in his culture. In fact, one of the biggest things he does is he reopens the temple, which the Bible tells us his dad had had nailed shut for his generation. That Ahaz had went into the temple, nailed it shut and said, this is not the way we live, and then introduced the worship of all of these pagan idols instead. I mean, think about that. If that's Ahaz's uh, Israel, if that's where he lives, then that means the entire generation that grows up under Ahaz learns nothing about Yahweh. They never see anything in the temple. They never experience or remember the things God did for the generations before them. You very clearly see a generation that comes up that knows nothing about God. And Ahaz wants to reopen this temple. He wants the the priesthood to be reinstated. He wants to clean out the pagan idols. So here's, here's the picture. Hezekiah looks across this nation, and he sees that what once was is no longer. Instead, there's this generation of children being raised who don't know the realities of God. They don't know the stories of the Exodus. They don't know the mighty works that God had shown. They don't know the mercy of God displayed. The only thing they knew were the lies and the false idols their parents worshipped. So pure speculation here, and count it for what it is. It's just speculation. But I like to think that maybe this poem was read aloud as they pulled those nails out of the temple door. That the temple was about to be open for the first time in a generation. It's this renewal moment for Israel. It's this plea to not let it happen again. Psalm 78 verse 1. My people, hear my instruction. Listen to the words from my mouth. I will declare wise sayings. I will speak the mysteries from the past, things we have heard and known that our fathers have passed down to us. We will not hide them from our children, but we will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, his might and his wondrous works that he has performed. He established a testimony in Jacob. He set up a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that a future generation, children yet to be born, might know that they were to rise and tell their children so that they might put their confidence in God and not forget God's works but keep his commands. Then they would not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not loyal, and whose spirit was not faithful to God. And then from here, the psalmist is going to go on, and he's going to tell the story of Israel. He's going to tell the marvels of the Egyptian exodus of the plagues and the way God rescues Israel through the Red Sea. He's going to tell the story of the wilderness generation and tell how God provides through manna and water through rocks. And he's going to tell of Israel's failure. You ever heard the saying, the victor writes the story or the victor writes the history? really fascinating thing because most of the time, whoever wins the war writes the way the war happened. The victor tends to write themselves as the good guy and everyone else as the bad guy. The Bible's fascinating because the Bible really never writes man in as the good guy. There are plenty of times that man does good things, but the Bible is never afraid to show you the faults and the downfall and the failures of even the best, most godly men. The Bible does not hide itself from the reality of brokenness. Why? Well, because in this story we call the Bible, humans are not the protagonist. God is the protagonist. God is the good guy. We are not. And I think the psalmist says, we have to embrace this reality, guys. We are not the good guy in the story. In fact, and he goes on to list all of these different failures. It seems he believes that every generation will have to reckon with the fact that their story tells of failure and faithfulness. Both are at play. But the psalm is going to go on and tell of that faithfulness, and it's going to talk about it over and over in this way of testing God. So verse 18 says, They deliberately tested God, demanding the food they craved. Verse 41. They constantly tested God and provoked the Holy One of Israel. Verse 56. But they rebelliously tested the Most High God for they did not keep his decree. When the author's saying that they tested God, what he means is that they were, rather than relying on God, they were distrusting of God, questioning God's power. Can God really save us from Egypt? Can God really provide for us in the wilderness? Can God really conquer that nation? Can God really do these things? And He seems like every single generation would forget the events of where God had came through in the past. And they would lose their own faith. They would lose what God was trying to do. And this pattern begins to unfold. So this pattern folds in this psalm where it calls us to remember God's amazing works, to remember all those times that God has pulled through for his people, but then to remember how Israel always (laughs) failed to respond, that God would do something amazing and Israel would march through the Red Sea, and as soon as they got to the other side, they would say, I wish we were back in Egypt, at least we had food there. As if God's miraculous power wasn't just put on display days ago. To remember how Israel failed. And then with that, to remember God's response of justice. That God would allow there to be consequences. That he would allow there to be justice. But then to remember that God's justice still always leaves room for compassion. It's remembering the story of how God's forgiveness offered because of his mercy is the only thing that keeps the story of God and keeps the story of humanity moving forward. This is what the author wants instilled into the next generation. Why? why? Why does he want to instill this into the next generation? Well, because number one, they're going to mess up. They're going to fail. I, I don't know why we look at the younger generation, we can't, we, I just can't believe how messed up they are. Yeah, so are we. That's what your grandparents thought of your generation. And that's what their grandparents thought of their generation because every generation fails. These kids up here are wonderful and amazing and it's so good, but guess what? They're gonna fail. They're going to fall short. It's a biblical reality. They will not meet the standard. They will make decisions that are unbecoming of a child of God and what they're gonna need is not shame and resentment and to be put in their place, They need to be reminded that while God is just and may allow consequences, his compassion is always one step away. His love and grace is right there. See, in the mind of the leadership in Hezekiah's day that grew up in a godless reality, this is the only hope for future generations. Because if they are not told the realities of God, they will be peddled the enslaving lies of the world. So, what, what is God's reality? What's the reality that's being instilled? And I love it because I think verse 38 gives a great concept of what this reality is. Yet, he, well, let me just start in verse 36. But they deceived him. They deceived God with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their hearts were insincere toward him. They were unfaithful to his covenant. And then verse 38, yet he was compassionate. He atoned for their iniquities. He did not destroy them. He often turned his anger aside. See, This is God's reality. That no matter how off course it seems to be going, no, how many, how, no matter how many kids you see doing TikTok dances in the middle of the street, that God's still in control, and that the defining part of this upcoming generation, if it is to be had God's way, will not be the note of their failures. It will be the note of God's compassion. It'll be his forgiveness. It'll be his overflowing love that would extend from them to their children, to their children, to their children's children's children, because this is the only standard. It's the reality that there is nothing they can do to dissuade God from loving them. It's the reality that this world cannot deliver on its promise, because it's going to make them promises. This world's going to try to promise them purpose. It's going to try to promise them deliverance, that if they would just give up this identity to take on this identity, if they would just trust this corporation over this corporation, if they would just make this decision and not that decision, that they would finally achieve that standard of, of Perfection and purpose that they've always longed for, and it will never deliver, and it in will instead leave them with anxiety and brokenness over and over and over again. It's the reality that they will be the next generation to tell this story. But it all hinges here on verse 38 that God is a God of compassion that atones for their iniquities. It's the story of the gospel. I don't know how familiar you are with the Bible, and that, that's okay if you're not. But that concept—he atones for their iniquities. If I just told you that out loud, and I said, "What do you think that is in the Bible?" If someone asked me that, what do you think that is? I would tell you that's probably somewhere in Paul's letters, because Paul writes about that all the time—that Christ came to atone for our iniquities, to forgive our sins. But it's not in Paul's letters. It is, but it's not just there. It's right here in Psalms too, Psalm 78 as well, because God is unchanging. That God has always been in the business of atoning for sin, of restoring people back to him through the sacrifice and the blood spilt before him. But all the ones of the Old Testament were pointing forward to the one coming, Jesus Christ. Where Jesus dies, he spills his blood for all of humanity, for every generation that will come. For every generation that has ever existed and every generation that will ever exist, his blood is the atoning sacrifice so that there may be forgiveness. And maybe you need to hear that story first. Because maybe the next generation right now is not your priority, Philip. I get it. Next generation stuff. I'm still trying to figure out where I stand with God. I'm still trying to figure out if God even loves me. And I would just remind you that God's compassion is so available for you too. We're focusing on the next generation today, and that's great. But if you don't know of his compassion, his grace, his goodness, please come talk to me after the service. It is available so that you might have your sins forgiven. You may be set free by the blood of the Lamb. But if you do know that, if you are set free, then what do we do? Who are we supposed to be? I think that starts in chapter 78. Verse 4. I love this verse. We will not hide them from our children the the wise words, the truths, the realities of God. We're not going to hide them from our children, but we are going to tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, His might, and the wondrous works He has performed. So, how do we do that? How do we reach and focus on the next generation? What's the secret sauce to, to reach them? So this is this is your note-taking section. If you're a note-taker, we're going to start going into this. And I'll just go ahead and let you know so I don't get claimed for plagiarism. I stole all of it. So this is from uh, a guy named Shane Pruitt. Shane Pruitt is the head of the kind of the next generation mission of the North American Mission Board. Awesome guy. Fantastic uh, evangelist to the upcoming generation. And so he's written books and done podcasts and talks about his viewpoint. And so what he did is he went and did a big kind of survey of current high schoolers. This was two years ago. So high schoolers and middle schoolers and just kind of asked him, what are you looking for, for a church that connects with you? And he said, so I think I found the secret sauce. And then he says, and the secret sauce is there is no secret sauce. It just doesn't exist. Instead, what we can do is we can just focus on some simple realities. The first one is this, 77% of Jesus' followers came to Jesus before the age of 18. 77% of people came to Jesus before they turned 18. If you want to extend that age to the age of 30, then the statistic goes up to say 95% of people come to Jesus before the age of 30. I understand that God's sovereign. I understand that he can do anything he wants. So don't hear me saying something other than that. But if we just let statistics be practical, this statistic shouts at us that children's ministry is not just a program to be ran within a church, but it is quite literally our frontline efforts in growing the kingdom of God. Just statistically speaking, if we want to make a difference in Portalis, it starts with the children of Portalis. That's where it begins. So how do we fight those front lines? Six things I just want to kind of walk through and talk about as we try to do what Psalm 78 says, as we try to reach this next generation. Number one, see them as people, not projects. See the next generation as people, not projects. Check your motivation. And by the way, I'm saying this to myself just as much as I'm saying it to you because I am also guilty of this. But how often will we say things like, if, if we don't reach the next generation, in 10 years our church will close and it will cease to exist. I'm not saying that's a bad rationale, but is that the main reason we exist? Is the main reason we exist is just to try to elongate our lifespan as long as possible so that 10 years from now, First Baptist Church will still be here? I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but is that the main reason we exist? Or sometimes we'll think in our minds on the other side of that is like, if we could just be the cool, hip, trendy church in town... And I'm not saying it's bad to sing fun new songs. I'm not saying the church can't be fun and enjoyable and relevant. In fact, I think it should be fun and enjoyable. But is that our main motivation? And I would just remind you, if we understand the biblical model, our main motivation is not that First Baptist Church would keep on going. Our main motivation is not to be the cool, hip, awesome church. Our main motivation must be the gospel. That's the only motivation we have. And I'm just telling you, if God wants to raise up another church that will communicate his gospel better than we will, I would just rather us go ahead and die. I don't mean that to sound rude or mean, but I'm telling you, the gospel precedes the relevancy of this church. The gospel precedes the purpose of everything else we could exist for. We reach the next generation because of the gospel. They are people that need the gospel. They are individuals created in the image of God. The gospel sees every single child and teenager in this town, not as a project, but a person, a person that God loves, and he wants to redeem from their sin. And if you treat the next generation like they're just projects, and we're we're just going to offer them gimmicks and manipulations, I promise you they'll see through it every time. They don't care. So see them as people not projects. Number two, reaching the next generation has nothing to do with age. I know we set up a whole Sunday called next generation Sunday that had everything to do with age. And now I'm saying it has nothing to do with age. I get the irony there, but bear with me. So often we think that in order to reach the children, we, we really need to have the coolest young adults with like skinny jeans and white sneakers. And again, I'm not saying skinny jeans and white sneakers are bad. Okay. That's not my point. I'm not trying to, and all these new preachers today, where would you want to wear. I don't, I don't really care all that much. But the most effective children's and youth ministries, statistically speaking, are ones that are often heavily influenced by senior adults. I'll never forget my entire youth group career. There was uh, a guy we uh, we called him Crazy Wayne. I don't. He looked like Albert Einstein. Uh, you know, he had that kind of crazy white hair, and he was always our bus driver, and he was our senior adult, uh, our senior high teacher. So he taught Sunday school for the senior high high school students. This thing does not work well with a tablet. Did you guys know that? And so I'll never forget just him always over and over again pouring into me every time he would see me. Philip, how are you doing? What's school like? And this this is a guy that was 70 plus years old. And he did nothing but pour into the youth group of our church. And we would just have youth all the time just say, I love Crazy Wayne. I love Crazy Wayne so much. It was never about age. It was about someone that would love us and encourage us and serve and work with us. See, here's the thing about senior adults. You guys have the most wide open calendars. You guys have the most resources. You guys have the most experience and wisdom. And if you let your age be the reason you avoid children, you will miss all the ministry that comes with that. But also, on the, same, or the other side of that coin, don't let their age be the reason why we disallow them to participate in church. So often we cut off our own discipleship legs when we try to hyper-age-restrict our ministries. The Bible does not give us a model for hyper-age-divided ministries. We're going to stick our youth up here in this corner, and we're going to stick our kids all the way down here. And there's, not, there's good things in catering and helping them learn the way they're created to learn. But to just say, well, we can't let them do this because they're not old enough... I think, flies in the face of the Bible. The Bible gives us a model of multi-generational leadership. So what if it became normal to have 16-year-olds handing out bulletins with 60-year-olds? What if it became normal to have 14-year-olds lead prayer? What if it became normal to have nine-year-olds read scripture? That's what my church did. My church gave me the chance to preach my first sermon at 17, and I promise you, it was not good. It was not good but they loved me. And I had so many old ladies that came up after me and just said, Philip, that was amazing. And they lied in God's sanctuary. (laughs) But that was a vital moment in realizing who God was calling me to be. That they would take a chance and give a teenager a chance to do something like that. We must always be wary of putting massive separations between us and the upcoming generation and instead should try to use them within the kingdom and service of God right here within the church. So don't let age be an issue. Number three, see the next generation as the church now, not as the church of the future. Speaking just in the view of the New Testament, The New Testament tells us, believes that any person redeemed and renewed by the blood of Christ is then indwelt with the very same spirit that we are, no matter how old they are. So even a five-year-old that comes to faith and gives their life to Christ is indwelt with that same spirit. Now, yeah, they're going to need to be discipled. They're going to need to be trained. They're going to need to be taught doctrine and theology. All of that matters. But the Bible seems to see and say that they are not just the future of the church. They are the church with just as much of a part. It's easy to forget how much the younger generation is capable of, and I get it, right? We don't much have 12-year-olds now that are like, I grow up picking potatoes on my granddad's farm. It just just doesn't happen that much anymore. What we do have is we have 13-year-olds who literally make money creating logos and doing social media branding. That's a thing that 13-year-olds will do, that they'll make money by moderating an online chat It's a different work ethic. I get it. But 13-year-olds are capable of doing that. I don't know if I want to remind you of this one, but I just will anyways. There are 15-year-olds that are capable of operating four-ton vehicles around you every day. I know that makes you lots of confidence in that one. 16-year-olds in the workforce, there are 18-year-olds holding automatic weapons defending your and my freedoms overseas right now. And I'm just saying, if we can train an 18-year-old to shoot a gun... Surely we can train an 18-year-old to hold a Bible and share their faith. Surely we can train them to serve in church. They just have to be discipled. If 77% of people come to faith before 18, then the most effective model we could ever curate is a mobilized young generation on fire for God. So, it's the church of now, not just the church of the future. Number four, be authentic and be transparent. The next generation is, is gimmicked out. They are used to excellency, don't get me wrong. They, they, know that, they know when video editing is done poorly. They watch YouTube every second of their life. They know when something is well designed and badly designed, they know when something has a good aesthetic and a bad aesthetic. But they can see right through the facade. So yeah, we, we should be fun, the church should be fun. It should give good illustrations, we should have on-point graphics, all that stuff's true. But the next generation does not need more entertainment. They are entertained enough, I I promise you. They need substance. They need someone that's gonna be authentic and transparent. They need you to be honest, honest about your struggles, honest about how you need the gospel every day, honest about your marriage, your singleness, whatever it may be. They need you to be honest and transparent. Number five, they know brokenness from an early age. I would just add in here, no matter how hard you try, it is nearly impossible now to keep brokenness away from your kids. Most of you parents know that well at this point. Screen, smartphone, internet has all put things in proximity to your children that Hollywood wouldn't even think of making. And so they know from an early age just how broken the world is, and they are desperate for a solution. Uh, just recently, there is a non-Christian Sometimes pretty vulgar comedian, so I don't encourage you to go look him up. But uh, he was doing a panel. His name's Bo Burnham. It's about my age, and he was doing this panel over this very thing. And I just wanted to read a quote from what he says on this panel. Again, not a Christian. People are wrestling with these difficult questions of the sort of weird meta hellscape that it is to be online, and the kids know it and they sense it. I grew up a little bit on the internet, and I felt the repercussions of it. I suffer from anxiety, and I know where it leads. And the kids today know this as well. That's why their memes are all ironic and detached and self-referential and 12 layers deep because truth is completely dead to them and they know it. They look at the president, they look at culture, they look at the Coca-Cola ad of some person winking and smiling at them and they just think, forget it. We do not have to sugarcoat the brokenness of the world to them. We do not have to lower the bar so that they can understand it. We just have to teach the Bible. At the end of the day, I'm telling you if they can understand algebra, they can comprehend how Jesus is the only solution for sin and believe me they are looking for a solution. And they are getting caught up in the world's lies left and right about what that solution is, and it's only leading to more anxiety, more desperation, more brokenness. They need a solution. And so number 6 would be they can just they can handle the word. They can handle the word of God. Give them the word of God. They're hungry for something of substance. Gen Z is the least religious generation we have ever seen. They are a byproduct of a post-Christian culture. They're a generation of kids that grew up watching their parents attend church when it was just simple and easy and convenient. And they said, well, if that's all it's gonna be, I don't really need that myself. And so for many of them, The doors to the temple, the doors to the church have been metaphorically nailed shut. And as that godly influence in their life wanes, the more they're desperately going to need truth to counteract that chaos on a daily basis. We have that truth. Guys, we we have that truth. First Baptist has that truth. We don't have to be the most relevant cool church in town. We don't have to be the biggest production show that anyone's ever seen. We have to go and connect with the next generation that is totally broken and desperately needs something that will offer their solution to their brokenness. And the only answer is the gospel. That's it. So what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? We're going to have a time where David's going to come and a couple of the youth and help us lead and worship one more time. But I just want you to really think about that question. What are we going to do about it? How are we going to connect with this next generation? And, hey, if God's not calling you to children's ministry, please do not feel like I'm trying to twist your arm and say, well, he is now. If God's not calling you, don't serve. You will have a miserable time, I promise. It's not easy, okay? But I'm just saying, if God's calling you, you need to try to connect a little bit more. I'm not telling you it'll be easy. I'm not telling you you won't get frustrated. I'm not telling you there won't be days that you look around and think, why? Why do they act this way? I would just remind you that your grandparents thought the same of you. And yet they loved you anyways. And you can do that for the next generation even right here at First Baptist. You can do that for the next generation in the high school. You can do that for the next generation in the middle schools. You can do that in the next generation as you coach teams or lead children. You can do that wherever you are. So what do you need to do to reach that next generation? How do you see them as people? How do you not let age be an issue? How do you see them as the church now for those that are saved? How are you to be authentic and transparent with them? How do you not just baby or sugarcoat the world to them? And how do you just give them the word of God? These are the things I want you to think about. And if your interest is, hey, I want to I plug in with First Baptist. I want to get on mission. I want to help on Tuesday nights with Celebrate Recovery. I want to help David with youth. I want to help on Sunday mornings with nursery. We need your help. We can put you to work. That would be great. Talk with Pastor David about that. One of the things we do here at First is we make a big deal about our child protections. And so uh, we even have the wonderful chance to partner with the children's home and do some training. So on November 17th, we're going to be doing a training with them. That's all about how do we stay safe and keep our kids safe. Those are big things to us. They're not just hoops to jump through, they're, they're serious things that we wanna make sure we protect our kids from. But we have places for you to get involved. If you're saying, that's not what God's calling me to right now, great, I understand. How can you still connect with the next generation? Pray for them, write cards, encourage them, give them chances to serve within church, whatever it may look like. How do we reach and focus? How do we do what Psalm 78 four says? How do we make it a promise that we will not hide the truth from their children, but we will tell a future generation the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, of his might, his wondrous works that he has performed. Father God, I ask you how we're gonna do this. God, the reality is we can only, only do this through your power. We can only do this through your goodness, your grace, your love. So God, give us that. God, fill us with your spirit that we may have a desire to reach the next generation, even when we don't understand them, even when it seems so foreign and so weird, even when it feels like the culture is so fastly outpacing us, so quickly outpacing us that we can't even keep up. God, let us remember that you are still the God of this universe. You are the God of that generation, just like you're the God of our generation and the generations that all came before us. And your compassion still stands. God, let us celebrate that compassion as we share the glories of your gospel. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.